To the final four is not on the schedule. I'm your host, Eric, alongside with expert analyst Rod. Thanks for joining us on the best MSU basketball podcast featuring an in-depth recruiting, game matchup, and post-game analysis. We dive deep to give you the best tools to enjoy the Spartans and impress your friends and family. Hey everybody, it's Eric alongside Rod. We're here to do our season recap for the Mission State 2022-2023 season. Uh, before we begin, I just want to thank everybody who supports the show. It's been a long season and a pretty satisfying one, I think, overall. And I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. Uh, it's been it's fun getting into the postseason now. We're going to roster construction, recruitment, and we'll do a couple of interviews this summer and try, try to keep some content going uh, as we get geared up for football season, baseball season, I guess, whatever, else, <laughs> until we get back into baseball or basketball, which is actually, you know, in some ways, it's not that far away. Uh, so uh, if you want to support the show, go head on over to tffinots.com slash support. You can do one-time gifts via PayPal or Venmo if you like what we're doing. Uh, you can also do a recurring one-time or a recurring gift through Patreon and uh, either and there are a number of levels you can do that at. And, you know, in many ways, uh, even for as many shows we put out, you know, five, ten dollars a month is like less than a dollar show. So how much do you value the show? How much do you like us being on the air? So we appreciate any support you give us. So head on over there to uh, support Tiffnots. Uh, unfortunately, Michigan State falls in the Elite Eight, or sorry, the Sweet Sixteen uh, to Kansas State, and so we're going to talk about Michigan State season this year. This, and we're as we're recording this, it's uh, Tuesday, uh, March twenty eighth. So if you're wondering, uh, sort of, if there's something's newsworthy, we don't mention it. That's why. So this one we're recording. Uh, Michigan State finished the season twenty one and 13, 11 and eight overall in the Big Ten, uh, and I think you know the the first thing I think to look at before we go through the, I guess the season is just to try and think about how, what it is you had your expectations. Cause when you find a, a season that's satisfying, I think you have to look at, you know, how you felt about the team, how you felt they ended. I think probably most people felt uh, satisfied in how the season ended and that ended in the second week, made it to the first weekend, the second weekend, which Michigan State hasn't done for a while. It's been a couple of years. And so I don't know, maybe that we just start there before we go into the kind of going through the actual season, you know, do you look at the season and think this was a successful season? Uh, because, you know, the streak has continued to 25 straight NCAA tournaments. Michigan State made it out of the first weekend. Yes, they didn't make the Final Four. And you certainly look at the the field and you think, wow, you know, one or two plays here or there. And this is, it was open, you know, for Michigan State. But I suppose a lot of other teams might feel the same way. Yeah, for sure. And I think that some of that, you know, and I've seen some of this out there that, oh, if Michigan State could have just taken care of business. Nobody was Alabama got bumped on, on the other half of the final four bracket. And, you know, all you would have had to do is beat FAU. Well, if, if you watched the FAU game against Kansas state, FAU is pretty good there. And they were pretty good. All you, when we had our bracketology shows, I talked about that, that they were the one mid major lock at large team that even if they'd lost conference USA tournament, they were still going to get in the field. That, that means they're pretty good. And, and look, yeah. you can say, well, the path was there for Michigan state. And certainly if the question is, do I think Michigan state could play with all of these final four teams? The answer is yes. But I knew that beforehand. I knew that when the tournament started, right. the reality is, and I've said this elsewhere and I know I've said it on this podcast, 
the idea that there was any meaningful separation the way there normally is between, you know, say the teams on the one and the two seed line versus teams on the six or seven line or eight or nine in FAU's case um, was ludicrous. It was obvious during the regular season. I am not surprised at all that this is what we've got. What have we got? We've got two fives, a four, and a nine in this final four. Um, there are some interesting things. Uh, this was, I believe, the first time in a long, long time that there wasn't a one seed that even made the Elite Eight, and there was only one two seed. That was Texas who lost. Um, this is the first Final Four since seeds started being applied to the tournament field, and that was in 1979, the year Michigan State won a national championship. Um, that was the first year there were seeds. Uh, going back that far, this is the first time that there's a, been a Final Four without a single McDonald's All-American on any of the four rosters. So what does that tell you? It tells us several things. It perhaps tells us something about the relative importance or lack thereof of elite high school recruiting to success. Mm -hmm. it, it certainly might speak to that. Um, it says something about the types of schools that are able to come through to the final four. Uh, UConn has certainly had their share of McDonald's All-Americans over the last 25 years. And Miami's even had the occasional one. I think they had one in uh, 2016. Um, and they may have had a couple of others over the years. I'm not certain. Um, but San Diego State and Florida Atlantic certainly are not schools that typically have any. So um, right. it says something about the types of schools that are able to get through. But I also, I think, I think that the big lesson that I'm drawing from this season, and we're talking in a macro sense, not just Michigan State, is that we are seeing the true impact of the portal. Now, am I, as opposed to NIL, I think NIL is a factor to some extent. Certainly Miami. Miami had the most notorious case where they went out and got Nigel Pack um, from Kansas State, I believe, paid him a lot of NIL money, and then one of their returning players, Isaiah Wong, was threatening to leave unless his NIL deal got sweetened. Well, those two guys are perhaps two of the biggest reasons why Miami is in the final four. So NIL matters, but mm -hmm. the bigger deal certainly is the portal. I did a post on the Spartan mag board and I don't have it in front of me. I can't remember the exact numbers, but the portal has played a large role with all four of these teams. I want to say San Diego state has three starters through the portal. I mean, that's a lot. Um, and all four teams have had multiple rotation guys at the very least acquired through the portal. So you can say positively, well, all four of these teams have been shaped uh, in pretty dramatic ways by the portal, allowing them to bring in talent that has truly impacted their teams. And that's true. But I also think there's another side of it, which speaks to more generally what we're talking about here. I think that this season, more so than any year I can remember since I've been paying attention to college basketball, which goes back to the late 70s, had a profound lack of consistency 
in teams, and I mean every team, even the the one seeds, the the teams that you know were so-called powers, Alabama, mm-hmm. Houston, those teams did not have the level of of consistent play that I normally would expect from a so-called elite team. And I think there's a lot of potential reasons for it, but I think the single biggest one, in my opinion, is the impact of the portal. You have rosters. We saw it in the big 10, you know, a team like Illinois is up and down the roster. These were guys between freshmen and portal guys. Almost nobody had played a second of basketball for Illinois before the season started. So we're, we're used, I know I've talked about this on here before, you know, we're used to seeing two programs basically operate that way year in, year out, Kentucky and Duke with one and dones, right? Constant roster churn and the new guys every year, but that's only two programs. They are dealing with, you know, supposedly elite talent. And then on top Mm -hmm. of that, even those programs, you can say relative to expectations, probably haven't quite achieved as much as some would have expected them to. There, there are a lot of years in there where Kentucky or Duke or both were considered the top title contenders. And yet over the one and done era, they've each got exactly one championship. That's not nothing, but it's, it's not really uh, the kind of evidence you would want to see to suggest that, Hey, this is the preferred way to go about it. Well, now we're talking about lots and lots and lots and lots of teams basically having the same, the same general scenario. Yes. It's with more experienced players, but it's also maybe with guys who don't have quite the high end talent. And you're talking about coaches who are now doing this freshly, you know, after a certain point, Kay and Calipari, I think kind of figured out what their approach needed to be. Right. Well, we're in, we're in basically year two of this stuff. Right. Um, now I, we, we need to be careful to not take too much from one season as a data point, because if you go back to the 2022 final four, you had all blue blood national powers. You had right. Kansas, Duke, North um, North Carolina, and then Villanova, who maybe isn't quite a blue blood, but they're in that second tier. Sure. So, and that had portal, the portal was an impact last season too. But I think my, my personal belief is as we get deeper into this and portal usage keeps increasing by programs, um, we're going to likely see more of this lack of consistency, which is going to mean that the NCAA tournament is probably going to increasingly look like it did this year. Now, one MSU aspect to this, which only time is going to tell Michigan state is choosing to, at least at this point, to not go that route. Tom Izzo wants to continue to build with multi-year guys, largely based on high school recruiting, kind of the way he's always done it. Mm-hmm. He will supplement the roster where it makes sense, both from the program's perspective and the individual player's perspective to add somebody in the portal. We know that two guys on Michigan state starting lineup this year were transfers. Um, but I would note, you know, Joey Hauser was in year four in yeah. the MSU program <laughs> this year. Tyson Walker was in his second year. And in both of those instances, 
it took a while for those guys to really start to fully become the player that we thought they could be right. Not unlike when high school guys go through Michigan state's program, yeah, right. Rarely, very rare. I mean, I can, when I think about guys that were just instant on the button as freshmen at Michigan state, that list is very short. Gary Harris is one, and he's probably the most recent one. Maybe you could argue Miles Bridges, mm-hmm. um, but it's that, that's in the last fifteen years. I got two guys. Yeah, Jaron Jackson be the other one. Jaron Jackson, but yeah. even Jaron Jackson had you know there were holes in Jaron's game as a freshman. Oh sure, yeah. Um, so anyway, it will be interesting if Michigan State is able to keep on Tom Izzo's intended path of largely running his program the way he has always run it. Um, if, if they're able to, if we can discern any kind of advantage in that. Right. Yeah, exactly. Versus other programs. And that remains to be seen, you know? Um, but it's a, it's an interesting time. I am, I am not one who's bothered by what we saw in the tournament at all. I think that, um, the upsets, I guess I don't, I'm not, yeah. People, the fact that blue bloods aren't left or something like that. Yeah, some people have that problem. Oh, that's and, and I don't okay. understand it. It's yeah. this this is what the tournament's supposed to be about. And I don't feel I don't feel that you can say, well, the 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 level of play wasn't on par. Sure it was. Um, we had great finishes. We had all the things that we come to expect from the tournament, just even more unpredictability. And although as I say, I think that unpredictability was entirely predictable. <laughs> if you get my meaning yeah yeah, yeah sure. and 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 yet and i commented on it on this show i'm not trying to pat myself on the back i don't think it took any genius to see this the fact that national media guys and talking heads largely went chalk and even where they didn't it was like in the msu's region in the east the, almost everybody i saw had number five duke against number two marquette in the elite eight yeah. neither one of those teams even got to the sweet 16 you know, it just that the group think was incredible to me because if there was ever a year that should have compelled you to, to reject that and say, I'm not going chalk, this was it. Now, I was smart in one sense in my and I'm not sure where I'm standing in the in the uh, our our uh, bracket our challenge. Yeah, right. Yeah. But uh, I also did not pick any one seeds to get to the final four. So I got that part of it right. The problem is I also didn't get any of my final four picks out of the sweet 16. So, yeah. So I had the right idea. I just had the wrong suspects. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah. And, and then to bring it back around and then we can move on. Um, you know, you were talking at the outset about defining a successful season in Michigan state's year, particularly. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I understand those who say, look, any year at Michigan State where you don't hang a banner cannot be deemed to be a truly successful season. Okay. At, at a program where, you know, you've been in the last 25 years, you've been to eight Final Fours, you've won 10 Big Ten titles, six Big Ten tournament titles, and you didn't get any of those things done. All right. I, I'm not going to argue that point too strenuously. However, I also think that 
even getting to the second round or the second weekend rather of the tournament is a positive accomplishment. Mm -hmm. Is it, is it a team we're all going to remember for years to come? No, because at Michigan state, the teams we remember are the teams who win big 10 championships, get to final fours. I understand that. I agree with it, but it's not such a black and white stark, you know, binary thing, right? At least Mm -hmm. not in my opinion. Uh, I think this team like so many other teams struggled with consistency in MSU's case, it wasn't necessarily for the same reasons, but you know, I think the injuries had a lot to do with it. And, and then I just think, you know, it's not like inconsistency was invented this year. (laughs) You could have it (laughs) for lots of reasons. Yeah. And, and Michigan state struggled to find that a level of consistent play, but let's also understand something. If they had played the Minnesota game that was canceled and won it, as I think everybody expects they would have, they would have finished in a tie for second in mm-hmm. the Big Ten. Yeah. So is that a year that you just say, ah, I didn't do anything? No, I don't think so. Especially, again, considering circumstances. They, they didn't have their full roster for quite a bit of the conference season. And even when they did, some of that time was spent getting those guys back up to speed. To go through and, and a, a Big Ten that did not have teams at the high end necessarily, but had tremendous depth. And as I think we've seen in the NCAA tournament, that's meaningful. When yeah. in a in a year where there's not much separation, if you can legitimately point to like 10 teams that you think on any given night can rise up and play very good basketball, that's a very, very difficult conference to navigate. And Michigan State got done no favors by its schedule and yet still had the finish that they had. And then to to get to the second weekend, to to beat another power five team in the first round decisively, to then beat the number two seed, who was the Big East regular season and conference tournament champion, that speaks volumes. And then, you know, they lost against a good opponent in a tremendous game in many ways, a game that was there for them to win. They didn't quite get it done, but I don't, I don't look at that Kansas state loss and think, boy, Michigan state just really stuck up the joint. They didn't play well. They did a lot of great things in that game. A lot of them. They did other things that weren't so great and that ended up costing them, but that was, that was not a game. I walked away from feeling that MSU had just dropped the ball. I just don't. Other people maybe feel differently. I I didn't look at that game that way. I came out of it feeling mostly positive about what I saw. And so I I look at all of that and and you say, was it a successful year? I I think you can argue in some ways that it was. Um, Was it a tremendous, you know, maybe what we need to be saying is define levels of success. Clearly, again, this is not going to be a year that we talk about for you know decades to come. But did they do enough good things that I think Michigan State fans should feel pretty good about the state of the program and what this team accomplished? Yes, I would answer yes to that question. Yeah, I agree. And I, and it was and certainly when you look at the last couple of years, you know, make the playing game, lose to eventual what nat, uh, national runner up, but then 
win the first round, be very competitive in the second round, almost make it out of the first weekend against a, a really good Duke team. So I think, and then to be a really good Marquette team to get into the second weekend, I think you can say that a success again, not what you, to put to your point, no, no banners that you're going to hang anywhere. You don't hang sweet 16 banners in Michigan state. They have right. those in right. the practice gym, <laughs> They have right. sweet 16s, but they don't have them in the main uh, arena. So, uh, but one that I think ended, ended well, like it wasn't uh, the team flaming out at the end of the season and looking like a you know, piece of garbage. Although let's, let's, I guess let's just walk through the season a little bit to sort of remember what we ex- witnessed uh, early season. We should say began with, you know, the, Brutal schedule, starting out on the carrier with Gonzaga. Well, actually, started Northern Arizona, but then uh, on the carrier with Gonzaga, almost beats uh, beats Gonzaga on the carrier, which was a consensus top five team. Then beats Nor- uh, Kentucky in double overtime, and beats Villanova at home, and so got off to a really great start and it, and looked like a a really great team. And what you know, I had I think I joked at the beginning of the season. You know, I had actually placed my first ever sports bet. I thought for Michigan State to win the Big Ten outright, and I thought. That's a pretty good bet because they looked really good. And uh, so, I mean, that they started out great. And Madi Sissoko, you know, looked really great too. I mean, everything that you were worried about, they sort of seemed like they had the problems answered. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can pretty clearly say his two best games of the year came very <laughs> early. They came yeah. against Gonzaga and Kentucky. And in both of those games, I mean, he was matching up against elite players. And he was that productive. So, um yeah, I, I I think you felt very, very optimistic about the way Michigan State played the aircraft carrier game. You know, one thing that we could say about it is Michigan State shot miserably from three. So did Gonzaga. And that was, I think, pretty clearly affected by the elements. And we saw over the course of the season, Michigan State was actually a very, very good elite three point shooting team. Yeah. So that game was kind of tough. You know, MSU had a halftime lead. They weren't able to quite hold on. Gonzaga made plays down the stretch and, and won it by a point. Uh, but you still didn't feel bad coming out of that game. And, and although the perceptions, particularly of Gonzaga and Kentucky, fluctuated throughout the season, in the end, you were talking about what Gonzaga was a three seed, I believe, and Kentucky was a six. Yeah. So these, in the end, these were still two quality teams. They go and play Kentucky, make two fantastic plays at the end of regulation and the first overtime to stay alive. And then they win it, beat a Kentucky team that many people, and I'll include myself in this thought had a great chance to win the national championship. They come home against a Villanova team that was a little shorthanded and and frankly, in large part due to injury, never really got itself back on track. Yeah. Weren't as good as I think people expected they might be. Um, But still, MSU played very impressively and then late kind of had some issues dealing with pressure and, and had to hold on for the win. But still you looked at it and said, Hey, this team's three and one. They could easily be four and oh with one more play. And, and they've already faced two top 10 teams plus a perennial power recently in Villanova things are rolling. Well, not so fast, (laughs) right? Yeah, and so, and I guess you know the backdrop to all this too is that Moneyball in the summer, Michigan State looked really good. I mean, well, everyone looks really good in Moneyball, right? But some players looked exceptionally good. Jane Aikens looked super athletic, looked like he was going to be a dominant player. Malik Hall looked really good, and then before the season starts, 
Jane Aiken suffers a stress reaction. His foot requires surgery. And so he's recovering from surgery to start the season out, which Michigan State could sort of could handle, sustain that, um, you know, and sort of live through that. And then we get the news right before they head to Portland for the, the next tournament out, the PK-85, that Malik Hall has also got a stress reaction, not requiring surgery, but he's going to be out for a number of games. At this point, Jaden Akins is also put back on. He's taken out of the, the lineup because they're like, well, right. he's, he's got some you know, additional tenderness. We want to make sure we shut him down for a little bit so that he's better for the time Big Ten play starts. And so now Michigan State goes uh, from having you know almost basically full strength, although a sort of diminished Aikens to now no Aikens and no Hall as they head out West into Portland. And, uh, you know, I guess the best you could say is they survived and they got through that portion, but yep. it was tough. And then, so, and then even when Aikens came back, he was less than they go down to Notre Dame. They have that really horrendous game in Notre Dame, uh, where they just get wiped out by a pretty terrible team. Then they go a one and one in the big 10 where they get beaten at home by Northwestern, which seemed like a much worse loss at the time. Look later on, it looked it's not, right. a good, not a good loss, but not as bad as it had appeared. Win big at, Mich- at Penn State to sort of survive. And uh, so anyway, that's sort of how the season began before we got into the real swing of Big Ten play. Yeah. Um, I mean, the injuries were, were just a huge factor. And going into Portland, PK-85, you know, MSU won its bracket in the first of these events, PK-80. And it was, again, a very competitive field with a lot of great teams or teams that were perceived to be great before the season. Let's put it that way. Yeah, sure. Um, And MSU had a first round matchup with Alabama. Now we can look back at it and say, wow, that's the team that ended up as the number one overall seed in the tournament. But at the time, remember, Alabama was picked fifth in the SEC. So, yes, expected to be a good team, but coming off kind of a not great 22 season. Mm-hmm. They were okay. Um, had some freshmen that, and some transfers that changed the, uh, uh, the composition of the roster a little bit. I, people knew that Brandon Miller was a good player, but I don't think anybody expected he would be the best freshman in America. Not at that point. I think what he did in Portland actually went a long way toward convincing people of that, but MSU went in very shorthanded and, you know, you look back at it and say, well, they lost by 11. It wasn't that bad of a showing considering. Mm-hmm. Um, they then had to really fight to get wins over Oregon and Portland. And I think that's, that's where I began to believe that this team really showed its first signs of something that I think it should be credited. Izzo's talked about this a lot lately. It should be credited for, um, its ability to respond to adversity, yeah. to get back up off the canvas and live to fight another day and, and come back strongly. They showed that in PK 85 by rallying to beat Oregon, beat Portland. That at the time I thought was impressive. I mean, Jason Whiten's never played a bigger role than he did in those two games, but he was right. important. Yeah. You know, Pierre Brooks arguably played his best basketball because uh, th- they had to play him out of necessity. They had guys step up um, in that tournament to allow them to get those two wins, which was really important. They then have a tight turnaround. And this is the thing as I was talked about, it's not even so much who MSU played, but it's when they played people. 
the the travel and proximity of games to each other without a lot of time for rest, practice, all of that. That obviously bit them at Notre Dame. Notre Dame ended up being a really bad team. Yeah. For a for a power five squad. And yet they shellacked MSU at South Bend. You can chalk that one up, I think, almost entirely to the combination of the injuries and then the travel. Um, they then lose to Northwestern at home. As you say, it looked like a worse loss at the time. Still not a great one because it was at Breslin. Yeah. But Northwestern obviously showed in that game some traits that they continued to show all year long and route to them being a tournament team, which was they were very, very good defensively, and their guards on any given night were capable of giving them enough scoring to be very dangerous. I think, again, after those two losses, they showed great resiliency by getting off the mat without Malik Hall, going to Penn State, and rallying to win that game. Um, that too, much as the Northwestern loss was not as bad as it seemed. I think the Penn state victory was not seen at the time as as big a deal as it actually was Yeah, because of the circumstances and the quality of the opponent, Penn state was a very good team and a very difficult team to play. And Michigan state won that game on the road. That was a big deal in retrospect. Yeah. So before we go through the big 10, schedule let's uh, just briefly mention one of our sponsors nudge printing gabe and Brittany are great spartans they're alums they make all their products here in the state of michigan in portland uh, they are they are instrumental in getting the spartan strong movement going they were they printed over fifteen thousand shirts they've on the second run and so if you want to support shooting victims you can go to nudgeprinting.com and find a way to support shooting victims at michigan state they have great gear uh, both hoodies and sweatshirts and t-shirts, high quality printed, uh, soft, very wearable. I've worn the thing, their shirts and hoodies plenty of times. They're extremely comfortable. I really enjoy, I like them a lot. Uh, they also can get stickers like for your computer or for your car, for a cornhole, for your wall and vintage things, some old Sparty, um, vintage Sparties, like rough Sparties. They've got really old, like leatherhead Sparty. And then do you have other things too, if you want other schools? So most of the other schools in the state of Michigan, you get products there for the, any of the directional schools in Michigan, like Central, Western, Eastern, Northern, Lake State, Michigan Tech, uh, Alma, and a host of others. And so you can get those if you're house divided. You can't get University of Michigan stuff, which is fine. But head on over to Nudge Printing to get your gear. You won't regret it. All kinds of five-star reviews. Nudgeprinting.com. If you enter Final Four as one word in the coupon code, you get 20% off your order. So check it out today. So we go to the Big Ten play then, and Michigan State starts out really well. You know, a lot of the Big Ten play and how well you do is depend on who you play, when you play, right? It's you play lesser teams or, or tougher teams, you're going to look better. So they start out with three straight wins uh, once they came back, but then lost at Illinois where Hall gets re-injured his foot. And then this, again, this is sort of this, this is the story for Malik Hall, really, for the 2023, 2022-2023 uh, season, which is one of injury, where he's just never quite himself. When he was himself, he looked pretty good, but he that was only a few games. He sort of had just gotten reintroduced. We thought he was playing pretty well, kind of looked pretty fluid when he came back, and then gets it reintroduced in the Illinois game. And like, you know, from that point, it's tough for him. Defensively, Michigan State has some trouble. 
And Big Ten play went okay, but it was it was not, I think, what we had we had hoped for. And so I think you mentioned at the beginning of the, the onset here that a lot of the inconsistency in play you, you believe was in in large part due to the fact that you have rosters that aren't familiar with themselves, either new entry freshmen or a combination of freshmen and transfers. And so when you have largely, you don't have a culture of, you know, or familiarity with each other, you're just going to get this sort of uh, inconsistent play. Well, Michigan State was dealing with the injuries to Aikens and then also Hall. And I think that sort of led to their inconsistency during the Big Ten season. And uh, because at this point, you know, Walker had, is in his second year, as you mentioned, Joey had been playing for a number of years and, you know, really you have a starting center and this entire center position is new really all season as well. So right. Um, anyway, I think overall the big 10 season went okay. Probably would have, could have been better, but then you also in the middle of the season, you have the shooting incident that happens on Michigan state game is canceled in Minnesota. They don't end up making that up. They have to play. The first game is in Ann Arbor and a very emotional game, of course. Then they come home and play Indiana, which, again, that's sort of like an example of them bouncing back. They then go to, at some point, they go to Iowa. They're up big in Iowa and then in, in sort of catastrophic loss at Iowa. Uh, and they get off the mat. And after a bad start in Nebraska on the road right afterwards and then have an amazing second half where they took over the game and, and win there. And, you know, again, more examples of them despite sort of reasons to fold up, fold up the tent, you know, and go pack it up, they, they do the opposite and they, they bounce back from adversity. And so, uh, and then they met manage ending, uh, earning a four seed in the big 10 tournament. Right. And I, I think that, you know, again, I, I mentioned the portal as a primary instigator in inconsistency across the sport. And I believe that to be true. But it's not the only reason you have inconsistency. You can have inconsistency for a lot of reasons. Some of those were operative at Michigan State, in my opinion. The injuries. So, again, even if you actually, for periods, you had both Aikens and Hall back, were they fully acclimated? First, it was Jaden working his way back. Malik, after the first injury, seemed to come back quickly. But then after the second one, much more of a struggle to get back in the swing of things. And, you know, I, I, this was an unusual Michigan state team. We talked about it during different points of the season, its profile, the way that it played was very different than we're used to seeing MSU had very little production in transition. It was a poor offensive rebounding team, both objectively and especially by the program standards. Um, it was a very good defensive rebound or good defensive rebounding mm -hmm. team yeah. with occasional bouts of trouble, but for the most part, pretty good. Um, they didn't turn the ball over very much. It was one of the best, maybe the best, I'd have to verify that, um, turnover team in the Izzo era. Uh, maybe not a surprise considering the experience of their guards. Uh, it was an outstanding three-point shooting team, but it had next to no reliable low post presence. So we're used to Michigan state scoring in transition, scoring on second chances and getting some post production. They didn't have any of those things with this team because of that. They really struggled to find consistency offensively. And it took until late in the year, I'd say the last say three weeks of the season for the offense to really find its level that in part corresponded to AJ Hogard figuring some things out, in my mm -hmm. opinion, but it, there were other things too. 
Defensively, it was kind of the polar opposite. Michigan State was actually very good defensively for a long stretch of this season. But once their offense got back on track, the defense suddenly caved. And I think part of that was due to Malik Hall not really being fully back. He was a very important cog in that team defensively, both for what he could do individually in terms of matchups and also his understanding as a fourth-year guy of what they wanted to do, being able to provide help, being able to make sure people were doing their jobs, you know, all of those things that sometimes are more subtle, I think were, were definitely hurt by Malik's physical condition and consequently MSU's defense backslid a little bit really until they got into the NCAA tournament the first weekend, at least where they were just outstanding. And then the loss against Kansas state, they were not so good. So (laughs) again, inconsistency happened um, with Michigan state too, even though they didn't have much in the way of portal activity, um, they still suffered from the same kind of bouts of inconsistency that everybody else did. Um, so, yeah, that's, I mean, I think that was the watchword of the season. They, they struggled for a variety of reasons to find that steady level of high end play. And then we go to the big 10 tournament, which is, um, which was, you know, disaster, um, for not only Michigan state, but a lot of teams, I think, you know, Michigan had a disastrous, they probably the worst loss in the, where they had two yeah, field goals it, in the it second eliminated, half. It eliminated them from the yeah, NCAA tournament. Knocked them out of the NCAA, yeah. yeah, knocked them out of the NCAA tournament. Michigan State lost to, I think we just best described as a hot Ohio State team. And I think it just, it yeah. just is a testament to how deep the league was, even with a team that was in 13th out of 14 teams. Yep. The analytics were not terrible for Ohio State. I think justifiably so. I think we would question them because they just wouldn't win. But I think there were the makings, the, the pieces there that could, a competitive team that could do some things if they played well and they played well. Yeah. And let's just to put a finer point on that. I think that what we questioned was, well, what is this telling us about this team in total? At some point, the inability to win starts to matter. <laughs> yeah, right. And that was the case for Ohio state, but you could look at individual phases of their profile and see reasons to, to understand why they were overall still seen as a decent team. It's because there were certain components of the game that they were able, particularly offensively, not so much defensively that, um, but they were still playing very well in, you know, and, and when they started to get a few more things to come together, ironically, when they had key components on their roster out of the lineup, um, they went on a little run. And then uh, if we go to the NC tournament, obviously Michigan State, they beat uh, they beat a really very good USC team in the 7-10 matchup. And then they played Marquette, which was the Big East champion, Big East tournament champion. And basically, I thought Marquette really showed why they were so highly regarded going to the tournament. But they were you know number two seed. Michigan State was the number seven. And Michigan State... I think the big difference there, and again, I think just they looked better prepared, and I think you definitely saw the makings of you know sort of classic Izzo, that quick turnaround. They were just they were just ready for Marquette, and they seemed to know what Marquette was going to do before they did it, and um, and then of course fall to Kansas State in a game, which I think you can say well it was right there for Michigan State. The other way of looking at it too, in some ways, is that Kansas State had to play out of their minds, great game, and have a the point guard play the best game of his career easily. 
and uh, to in order to beat Michigan State in overtime. Yep, I, I agree with that assessment. I mean, uh, we'll, we'll start we'll start with those first two games. I think the most notable thing to come out of those games we talked about Michigan State finding itself defensively again in consecutive games. They faced, I believe, Boogie Ellis was the leading scorer in the Pac-12. If he wasn't, I think he was the leading guard scorer. They completely took him away. And then they completely eliminated the, uh, an All-American and the Big East Player of the Year. So two yeah. straight games, they completely took away the other team's lead guard slash point guard. They couldn't do it the third time in a row against <laughs> Stowell. But in those first two games, you know, we said it, like how important was three-point shooting to this team's success? Hugely so. They won those first two games shooting horribly from three. How did they do it? They did it by getting enough offense in other ways, first and foremost, taking advantage of the way those teams were pressing up from them to try and take away the three by choosing to go to the rim. And all of Hogard, Walker, and Akins were very effective in those two games in doing that. And then with their defense and their rebounding, they did those things that were program staples at Michigan State that haven't always been present at the levels we expect with this team, but they showed up in those two games. You then get to Kansas State, and ultimately, I I concur with uh, what you just said. The way I look at it is Kansas State did two things far better than they did over the course of the season. Avoid turnovers, and we could see how many possessions were right there looking as if they were going to be a turnover, and somehow they wouldn't be. And and Kansas State also shot the ball better from three, both overall, but also in terms of some unexpected guys making shots. A one kid who made his fifth three of the season in that game, they had another yeah. kid who's a 32% shooter, go two for three. The kid who did shoot 40% hit a shot from the logo, which I don't think was in the, the game plan. Um, you know, all those things happened. That is not to say that, and, and this is something that I saw people take up exception to it, Izzo said, but we said exactly the same thing here, and Izzo was 100% right. Kansas State was fortunate. They were lucky. That's not a knock on them. That's what you have to be. If you're going to win at the later stages of the NCAA tournament, especially, you need to be good, but being good is not sufficient. You also need to have breaks go your way, typically. Rarely is there a team that just wins on the back of just being that much better than everybody else. Usually they get some things to go their way, and Kansas State got a lot of things to go their way. If you replayed that game today, I'm going to bet they don't end up with five turnovers and I'm going to bet they don't shoot nearly 50% from three because they didn't do that over the course of the season. They did it that day. That's how it works. You yeah, know, and but they didn't it do did it the next take, day. <laughs> right. And, and look, Noel was still fantastic against FAU. I mean, I think he had 29 points, so he was still able to yeah. score, but, um, he didn't create as much for teammates as he did against MSU. Give FAU some credit for that, but also we could say, well, okay, Noel was still really good, maybe not quite as good in some ways as he was two days before. That's how it works. So I, I do agree with that, that it's it took Kansas State 
playing what I think was offensively the uh, just about the top level that they're capable that that team was capable of reaching. I don't think they could play a lot better than they did offensively. Defensively, you know, people obviously Michigan State people focused on MSU's defense, but Kansas State came in at least according to the metrics as a better defensive team than MSU was. And MSU's offense tore them up too. Yeah. So, you know, Kansas State had some problems created for them by Michigan State's offense, particularly its three-point shooting, which after two straight down games in the tournament returned with a vengeance against Kansas State. And, um, yeah, and that's what it took. It took a really, really strong effort from Kansas State to barely take MSU out. And so before we go into the team and individuals in Michigan State, we'll have a brief message from our sponsors. There's no I in team, but there is one in Indeed, and that's the hiring platform that you need to build yours. When you're hiring, you need Indeed. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites searching for candidates with the right skills, Indeed's a powerful hiring platform that can help you do it all. One of the things I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because Indeed does the hard work for you. They show you the candidates whose resumes on Indeed fit your description immediately after you post so you can hire faster. Join more than 3 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. Start hiring now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash sports. Offer good for a limited time. Claim your $75 credit now at Indeed.com slash sports. That's Indeed.com slash sports And support the show by saying that you heard it on this podcast. Indeed.com slash sports. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. All right, just looking at Michigan State as a team overall, they outscored opponents 70.9 to 67.9 this season. They shot 45.2% from the field and gave up 42.4%. Uh, defensively, they had a 39.3% from three-point range and gave up a 32.4% from opponents. Interestingly, they averaged 7.4 three, threes a game versus giving up 7.2 threes a game. Free throw yeah. shooting, uh, almost 76%, but only averaging a little under 12 free throws a game. Uh, rebounding, a rebounding edge of 35.7 to 32.6 this season. Uh, turn, turnovers averaging 14.6 a game uh, and, and creating 13.1. Uh, are you, whoa, are you sure about that? That uh, number, that turnover number sounds high. It is, it's 10.9, excuse me. Yep, you're right. Okay. Those are assists, sorry, assists per game, 14.6 to 13.1, you're correct. And the 10.9 assist, uh, turnovers a game and creating a little under 10 per game. Uh, steals about uh, 167 steals or 4.7 steals a game. Versus having 5.7 against 100, 101 blocks, about three blocks a game, um, and so then I guess I guess that just get that pretty much shows you what 
this team was right. They relied on the three. They were really good shooting three. They didn't probably take as many as we would hope, but that may also explain why they shot so well at 39% because they're just taking, you know, taking good looks, which always seems like that's what, you know, is requires for his players. I mean, we talked about their profile. Yep. Um, offensively, it was a very unusual Michigan state team. And some of the answer for, you know, the, around the question, well, why weren't they able to get up more three point attempts? One of them is that Michigan state prides itself on taking good shots. So they're not just going to launch threes just to launch threes. They take open threes, you know, but I think part of it too, is that without a reliable post presence, without consistency in terms of being able to attack the basket effectively, again, they got better at it late in the year in my view, but without consistency there, it's easier for opponents to take away the three, to take away clean looks going to be harder for you to get those good shots. So that was all part of it. Um, the free throw shooting, you know, Michigan state is a program typically is not among the leaders in terms of free throw attempts, but this team was extreme yeah. and it's because they shot a lot of jumpers, which is always an issue for MSU, but it was especially an issue for this team. And it's too bad because as you said, they actually shot free throws very, very well. It would have been better if they'd been a little more brand. And again, that's something else that changed a bit in the NCAA tournament. Because teams were really pressing up, trying to take away the three. MSU, as a, as a counter to that, got more aggressive in looking to get the ball to the rim. And they were rewarded for that, not just in terms of layups or dunks, but also in terms of getting to the foul line. Yeah, if you look at those, those games, especially those first two, MSU really outshot their two opponents from the line. Yep. So that was a welcome change on the season. Defensively, you know, MSU did a lot of good things this year, um, but that that stretch where they really struggled late in the regular season, I think is why that overall field goal against number 42, whatever percent, yeah. mm-hmm. um, that's a little higher than you want it. Yeah, usually it's that's a 30s, little higher think, than you yeah, want it. You like yeah, you want it in the, an MSU standard performance would be high 30s. And so they weren't quite as good as they needed to be. And they weren't quite as good as they played at times on a consistent basis and rebounding. We talked about, yeah, you know, defensive rebounding was actually much improved. That was good to see offensive rebounding was largely non-existent. And I would say, you know, heading into next season, the two areas, two primary areas that I would like to see improve would be the offensive boards and getting into transition. Those are the top two things for me. I'm guessing that will be, that will be echoed by coaches. Well, <laughs> well they're, they're two things that are staples <laughs> of the program. So yeah, I'm, I'm not going out on a limb. <laughs> so let's talk about some individual players. We'll start with Tyson Walker. And as we're recording this, we don't know his, uh, his fate, whether he's going to return for a COVID year. Uh, he started all 34 games, averaged 34 minutes a game. He shot 45.9% from the field. He shot 41 and a half percent from three, almost 80% from the, free throw line he uh, averaged two and a half uh, assists or rebounds a game he had um, 38 steals I mean he had a fantastic season he had probably in some ways you know but not to get into too much of whether he's going to come back or not because again it's recording as we're not sure but he you know, it's hard to imagine that he could have done more and been more uh, in this season than what he did and because he was both excellent offensively and defensively. And, you know, the question is, you know, what, 
what more do you have left to prove coming back another year? You know, is there anything else you can clean up in his game? And I don't think there's a whole lot he could do differently. Well, you know, I, I don't want, I, for the purposes of this discussion, I just want to talk about what these guys did. Yep. Um, not, not what they might do. Um, I would say that this was an outstanding year for him and it was outstanding because he solved the big, the one big problem in his first year at MSU that year, he was not consistently aggressive countless times. You would see Tyson pass up open shots. You would see him hesitate in terms of going to the rim because he was having trouble finishing over the bigger players that you see with more regularity in the big 10 than you did in, in the colonial, I guess it is at Northeastern mm-hmm. plays in um, those things all changed this year. And from jump, he was a much more consistently assertive player. And he actually, as the season unfolded, got to be a guy. This, this was not an MSU team that was particularly demonstrative. Didn't play with an edge that we sometimes see. But Tyson was the guy who was closest to that. And I think that improved as the year went along where you felt like he started to almost play with a little bit of an arrogance. And, and I don't mean that in a negative way at all. I mean, in terms of, and I, I've said this his first year here, Tyson Walker needs to play as if he knows that he is usually the baddest guy on the court. And we saw that happen this year. He had two games of 30 plus points. He was outstanding offensively in those first two NCAA tournament games. And even the Kansas state game, he still scored 16. Um, Offensively, he's a very difficult cover because he's an ultra reliable three point shooter. He's got the ability to get mid range shots when he wants because of his quickness and his handle. He can use those to create space. And then I think he got steadily better finishing at the rim, which was a problem his first year. So you add all of that up. That's a pretty good offensive player. He's not the point guard that AJ Hogarth is in terms of creating opportunities for others, but Tyson Walker makes very sound decisions. He is almost a note perfect secondary guard lead guard in that way. Now the offense could bog down at times when he was at the helm, because again, he's not the creative force that Hogarth is but he is not going to generally make mistakes. Yeah. And not often. Of, and he's the kind of guy who can go get his basket, which is not something that I that feel like too. they had the year before the year before they, they really, did. really struggled. They needed that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then you add into that, that he was a very, very high level defensive player. It was a great season. No, no yeah. two ways about it. Yeah. And I didn't even mention he did lead the team in scoring at 14.8 points a game. Uh, and he had a little over two to one assist to turnover ratio. So yep. let's move on to the number two score, which was Joey Hauser, who averaged 14.4 points a game. He also played, uh, started all 34 games. He played uh, 34 minutes a game. He actually had two more minutes than Tyson all season. He shot 48.4% from the field. He shot a pedestrian 46.1% from three, <laughs> 87.6% from the line on pretty good volume, 97 free throws in the year. Uh, he had 194 rebounds or sorry, 239 rebounds. He had, uh, so averaging seven a game, he uh, had also 14 steals. He had more assists than turnovers, which is pretty good, and a couple blocks. And, uh, you know, this for a story arc for a player who started Michigan State as a, you know, 
and I think Graham Conscious mentioned this a number of times in his show too, but just that what would have, what would Joey Hauser have been had he been able to play his freshman year or his transfer year, I should say, and gotten that uh, approval to play with Cassius Winston and Xavier Tillman in that 2019 yep. season. I mean, it's, it'd be interesting to see what would happen. And then he kind of came out and it was a COVID year and he's admitted many times. And I think many people have talked about it. He just really struggled with the fact that the, the social isolation really bothered him more than the average person. And it took him a long time to start to get back to the point where he even wanted to play basketball, finished last season really strong the last couple games, Big Ten tournament, and then the NCAA tournament, came back for this year and has been, I mean, you he was the most reliable, consistent player on that team, both from a rebounding standpoint and point standpoint. I mean, almost every game was a good game for him. Yeah. I mean, and you could take that right up through the Kansas state game. Yep. Um, it was, it was great to see it because that's, that's a guy who embodied what this team was about. The ability to get back off the mat and live to play another day and keep coming. Uh, I agree with you. Very consistent, probably their most consistent player, uh, outstanding year shooting the ball, um, was a very effective, he was a leading rebounder and was their best offensive rebounder, in my opinion. Um, and offensively, you know, what I think really helped him is that if you look at those first two years, he was actually playing. There were times when Joey would try to do a lot with the ball. He'd try to make plays for others. He'd handle it more. Yeah. And it got him into trouble. I think, Part of the key to him getting on track was late in the 22 season. It seemed to me that they started stripping back a little bit what he was being asked to do. And it simplified things. And that carried over into this year. You mentioned more assists than turnovers. That's a hugely positive number for any post player. You don't often see that. Um, Joey wasn't like a super dynamic playmaker for Michigan State but he was an important part of the way the offense functioned because he generally made the right decisions, the right reads, and he was a guy you could rely upon to get the ball where it needed to be. That's as much as you can ask for from a foreman. And I just think he was, yeah, he was consistently good. And it was great to see that happen for him, for Michigan State. I can't imagine what this year would have been like without him. So thank God he did decide yeah. to come back. <laughs> no kidding. And um, yeah, just a great note to go out on as you know, he's the one guy I think we can speak about with some finality that it, I don't think he's technically, we haven't seen the, the goodbye graphic, but he's as <laughs> much as said he's done. Yeah. So hats off to him wherever he goes from here. Uh, I think he ended his career exactly the way you want a guy to end it. People will have very fond memories of Joey Hauser as a player. And they should. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, next, we'll go to A.J. Hogard, who started 33 of 34 games. He averaged 30.6 minutes a game, shot 41.7% from the field. He shot a surprising 32.9% from three, which is remarkable compared to where he had started his, his career at Michigan State, and was 80.4% from the line, which is way up from where he was yep. in, the, in the past as well. 17-point improvement yeah, over the I mean, year prior. <laughs> that's that's a really amazing. And that's again, high volume. I mean, he shot a this, like, team yep. high 158 free throws, uh, actually averaged about 3.7 rebounds a game as well. 
Assist turnover ratio, he had 201 assists to 88 turnovers, 30 steals, 11 blocks, uh, averaging 12.9 points a game. So, many, you know, I I still feel like with AJ Hogarth, there's more. And but for this season, it was a it was a huge jump up. I think you know from a leadership standpoint, there's a there's a huge improvement from previous years, and he is the he is on a trajectory that you would say is a very positive one, and one that you're you're really wondering what next year could bring. Well, look, he he made the All East Region team. He's the only MSU player to make that five man roster. Um, so that's an indication of how well he played in the tournament. You know, he scored 25 against Kansas State in the finale. Um, and I thought he was very, very good in all three games. Uh, the issue with AJ, you mentioned all, all those numbers are great. I mean, even the three-point shooting, to get almost a 33%, if he doesn't improve at all, if he just maintains that level of performance next year, you'd take that in a heartbeat. Yeah. Absolutely. The question with AJ has been this year and, and at times in the past, how locked in is he? In other words, how are he and Izzo on the same page? Are they in sync with, with how they're seeing his role, what he needs to do for himself and for his teammates? Is he engaged in the game plan? Is he engaged in the game itself? as he's playing it. And there were times this season where you had to question that stuff. And that's, you know, that's what you can't have. I have admittedly from the beginning of his career, not always been AJ's biggest fan. Um, but I also have no difficulty in, in saying that it was true this year and it will almost certainly be true next year. AJ Hogarth is the most important guy on the MSU team. Yeah. As he goes, they go. Uh, and that's because he is the point guard. He is the guy with the ball in his hands the most. He is the guy that they ask to make everybody else better, to make things happen because he is a dynamic player. He can get his own, as we saw many times this season. He is their best finisher around the rim. He is their best passer. He is among their best defensive players, and he's a very versatile defensive player. Um, so there is a lot to like. The question will be, heading into next season, has A.J. finally completely turned the corner into being that reliable, reliably locked-in player, game in, game out? This season, he got a lot closer, but there were still enough bumps that you can't say, well, boy, he just had the way we could say about Tyson Walker or Joey Hauser, right? Where yeah. I think our feeling is, look, they can have the occasional off game because that happens, but you never questioned those guys in that way this season. They, they were there answering the bell every game. AJ got close to that, but not quite. That's the remaining step. Everything else he did statistically, style of play, all that stuff. I'm fine with. Yeah. Just tell me that the AJ Hogard we saw in the NCAA tournament or at other points in this season that were that were on the positive end, that that's the guy we see in terms of engagement um a hundred percent of the time next season, and I'll roll with it. Absolutely. Uh, next we'll move to Jaden Akins. Uh, Jaden, uh, this is we expected more from him this season and he delivered. 
He averaged a 27.5 minutes a game. He started 25 or 30 games. He uh, was 42% from the field, 42.2% from three. Now most, most of his field goal attempts were uh, three-pointers. I think a little, almost half of them were about a little under half. Uh, 70% from the line was a little bit lower, but he did, that was in fairly limited volume, only 24 or 34. He's, so he averaged a little under 10 points a game at 9.8. Rebounding was pretty good. He had four rebounds rebounds a game. Uh, he also had assist-turnover ratio of a little under one-to-one, so 36 assists and 39 turnovers, 36 steals, and 11 blocks. Yeah, uh, a lot to like. And and look, we all know this isn't going to surprise anybody listening to this. Jaden's season was negatively impacted by the injuries because he really, yeah. I don't think, really got fully in the swing of things until – say early to mid January. So basically about half the season, the first half was a lot of in and out, up and down. Um, he was a good three point shooter as a freshman. He was way better this year. Um, he is a dangerous three point shooter. I think he has an equal ability to Tyson Walker to create his own shot in the mid range. What I think the next step is for him in that realm is we need to see more of what we saw from him in the NCAA tournament. There is no reason in the world that Jaden Akins shouldn't be an absolute terror going to the basket. He has the handle, he has the speed, and most importantly, he has the high-end athleticism to finish consistently. And he's also strong enough, too. But you saw him make plays in both the USC and Kansas, or in, uh, Marquette games where he dunked yeah. off takes to the rim. That's there for him, and there is no reason in the world why he can't do that on a consistent basis, and I think doing that is going to make the mid-range game and his three-point shooting even more dangerous because teams are going to have to really be conscious of that. Um, I think his playmaking is something that's got to improve. Obviously, a negative assist to turnover is not ideal, but in fairness to him, he was not asked to play that role very often mm -hmm. where the ball was put, you know, mostly Jaden's role in the offense this year. It changed a little bit late in the season, but for most of the year, he was largely a spot up shooter. So he was the guy that Hogard or Walker were penetrating and then kicking to, you know, I think we will see um, him play more of a, a ball, you know, having the ball in his hand some more and hopefully that assist to turnover number will improve as a result. He is also, it should be mentioned, an outstanding wing rebounder, and he got better as the year went on. I thought he was really playing well there. And defensively, he had bouts of inconsistency like everybody else did. But, man, Jaden Akins locked in defensively, is, and this is on a team with some pretty good perimeter defenders. He's their best. Yeah. He and and you saw it actually. It's funny that Kansas State game uh, against Noel was just killing MSU. Now Jaden couldn't totally shut him down from making plays for others, but when they switched him on to Noel later in the second half, because uh, it had been a lot of Tyson Walker up to that point, Jaden Aiken stopped him from scoring very much. You could see a difference. I mean, I'm not saying Jaden locked him up, but but there was a difference. And, and that's why I think he's the guy of that whole group 
that has the highest ceiling defensively too. You could also make an argument for it at the other end, but Mm -hmm. overall, I think given the effect of the injury, Jaden did about what you would have hoped him to do. He was, he was definitely on an upswing later in the regular season. And then with the way he played the tournament, he played his best basketball at the end of the year. Yeah, I agree. And I don't think, and I think that was a reflection of the just finally coming back from the injury. Cause even when you're back in the injury and okay, it still takes you a while to get reintegrated into the offense. And Mentally. Yeah. There. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think, you know, we're going to see a different Jade next year, partly because I think this MSU team is through their composition and the depth is going to be a different team than this year that you're going to have a lot more transition opportunities for him. You're going to, you're yeah. going to be able to, he'll be able to highlight his athleticism. I think a lot more than he was able to this season and just being healthy will help quite a bit too. Yep. Uh, moving on to Malik Hall, who became sort of an enigma this year just because of his injuries and his problems. He only started five games. He played in 23 of them. He averaged 43.6% from the field. He was uh, 40, or sorry, 32.7% from the field, uh, from three-point range. He was much higher than that, but really went ice cold the last uh, four or five games of uh, the season. Uh, he shot 84.5% from the free throw line, averaging a little under nine points a game at 8.9, 4.3 rebounds a game. Uh, 28 assists to 35 turnovers, 12 steals, nine blocks. And uh, he looked really good at time early in the season. And you thought this was going to be, um, and I would say the yeah. one thing about Malik Hall, you could say about him in the past is he would have a game where he's, wow, this guy's amazing. And then he would disappear for a game or two. And then he'd come back and he's like really great. There was, now it was very short, but there was, I think consistency, those first few games of Michigan state that he was going to be a, a real important piece of this, this team gets injured, and then just never quite comes back. The first time back, maybe you could say he was pretty good and he was engaged the whole time. But when he came back the second time, he just, it wasn't an effort thing. It was just, I think he just wasn't physically up to the task a lot of times, and it was hard for him to sort of, to get what done what he needed to get done. Yeah, I agree with all that. I think it was a combination of physically, not because he, you know, he had the foot injury obviously twice, but then he also had back spasms late in the year. And, and I have it on good authority that I don't think, I don't think the MSU fan base ever really got a sense of just how tough it was for him physically at times like that Ohio state game in the big 10 tournament. He just was not there. (laughs) He just was not there. And you saw what kind of impact that had on Michigan state as a team. It mattered. Contrast that with how he looked in the NCAA tournament when the back straightened up a little bit, he played three very good games. Even the Kansas state game. I've heard people go after him because he missed a couple of free throws. Yeah. Um, Malik Hall had 13 and eight against Kansas state. He contributed oh, significantly yeah. and he was very good in the two wins as well. I'm with you on the start of the season. I thought he was MSU's best player in, in the uh, Gonzaga and Kentucky games combined. Mm-hmm. And he made huge clutch. Plays oh yeah. Against Kentucky yeah, too. Right. You know, he's had problems with consistency throughout his career. This year, I would argue, was different because I am fully ready to attribute the vast majority of his consistency issues to his physical condition. I think he was showing signs early that he was ready to have a really big senior year. And then it didn't happen in part because he wasn't healthy. Yeah. But look, he's a very important guy. I think when he was healthy, one of the things he demonstrated, which a lot of people had doubts about in the regular in 
and coming into the season is that he can guard wings. You can, and this may be an important thing for next year. If he does come back, he truly can play a hybrid three, four role. Because that's determined at Michigan State, first and foremost, by who can you guard. Well, I saw Malik, Hard, Malik Hall guard guards yeah. successfully this year right. when he was healthy. Um, but, yeah, I think, you know, the, the, the other thing you noted about three-point shooting, there was a stage fairly late in the year where he was at 40%. Right, exactly. And then it ended up where it ended up because he just could not buy one late. I attribute a lot of that to, again, not even just it's yes, it's about your physical condition, but it's also about if you're sitting out, if you're not practicing much, which again, I'm not sure everybody knows he wasn't practicing a lot through large portions of this season. Well, if you're not practicing much and, and you're just playing the games, it's hard to maintain offensive consistency, especially Trust me, that, that's that's one of the main reasons why I'm rarely a believer in the two sport thing with football players. If if they're a perimeter guy, at least being successful in basketball, because the first thing that goes when you don't get opportunities to practice is your touch, your shot. And and so it's not a surprise that Malik struggled late in the year because he wasn't getting the reps that you would hope to get. Yeah, and I, and the other thing I would say about Malik too, and and I, th- it was better in the first couple of games, and maybe you can attribute this a little bit to the injuries, but I thought you know he would get himself into trouble when he tried to do too much with the ball, uh, sure. much like you described with Joey from the previous year, where he would just try and make things happen, uh-huh. as opposed to in the flow of the game. Like he used to, he handled the ball a lot in that Davidson game in the NC tournament, but it was always when he was single covered and there wasn't there wasn't a lot of traffic around. Malik right. gets himself into trouble trying to trying to do too much with there's a lot of traffic and uh, that maybe that's something that will get improved next year. And I, I make the assumption that he comes back. I, we, again, as of this recording, we don't know at this point. We don't know. I'd, I'd rather not speculate at this point. I right. mean, I think, I think there are reasons to believe that, but we'll see. Um, I would agree with you on that. I would say part of the reason Malik does that is he has the capability of doing it. And at times he looks very impressive in terms of using his handle to create opportunities for himself at the basket. Um, I think he's been the closest thing on this team for the last two years to being a guy who has some Aaron Henry in him. If you remember how Aaron Mm -hmm. was able to do those things. Um, But I also agree that Malik got himself into trouble at times um, by overdoing it. And so if he does return, finding that balance is going to be important because I don't think he should just give it up. I think he's got to be more judicious. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think just knowing how to attack too is probably, you know, whether it goes to the fadeaway, the, the jump hook and those sorts of things. I think that's yep. that. And that may yep. just be a play more and getting a better feel for when you have more consistency in the games. Uh, moving neck down to Madi Sissoko. He, uh, he played, started 33 of 34 games. He was probably the biggest question mark coming into the season. I, I would think for all the, all Michigan state fans, you know, how is he going to play? You know, is he going to foul out in, you know, five minutes, like, like he was in the previous parts of the game. And I think he fouled out what one game, maybe he averaged uh, 21.4 minutes a game, shot 61% from the field on fairly limited volume, obviously no three point attempts. He was surprisingly 63.5% from the, from the line. He was a little bit better earlier in the season, but still 47 of 74 was pretty good for a guy who really never saw yep. the court before that and didn't really play a lot. 
he averaged 6.1 rebounds a game, which puts him at about 0.28 or so rebounds per minute, which is pretty good. And you look at historical uh, averages for Michigan State, that's actually a pretty high rebounding rate for a, a player. Uh, 18 assists to 42, 42 turnovers, not surprising there. Nine steals, 28 blocks. Um, you know, I overall, I mean, it, you have to say that the season was a success for Sissoko. Obviously, the first couple games we saw, he was, you know, amazing. You thought this is a guy who's going to be a world beater. And then sort of reality kind of came in. The scouting reports changed. I think he started getting into his head a little bit. When he, and I think he, I think it was a lot of a reflection of just try, getting used to playing all the time is I think a lot of what happened. And then at the end of the season, I think you saw him play much better. He was he relied on his athleticism a little bit more and just instincts, which were not terrible, uh, at least defensively uh, and from a rebounding standpoint. And then I think, you know, offensively, he's just a guy who, and in many ways, you just watch me and think, boy, this guy just needs to, he just needs to play a lot more because he doesn't instinctively know like when the pass is coming and, you know, when someone's going to hit him for, uh, you know, a dunk or a layup or a loop or something like that. He's just not, he's just not ready for it because I think, which makes him look like he's got bad hands. And I don't think his hands are that bad. Yeah, it's possible. Um, look, I, I, to me, I think the, the, the two big things were, can he stay on the floor? Can he defend, especially in pick and roll? And I think he answered both of those positively, right? Because if he could stay on the floor, just because of his size and athleticism, he'll give you a rebounding presence and he'll probably get you at least some garbage points or just easy baskets on lobs, what have you. And I think that came true. Now, does that mean that's it? And that's where the development ends and, and everybody should be happy. No, no, no. I, I wouldn't say that, but Michigan state, being a good defensive team starts in my opinion starts with what they get out of the five and in the modern game that starts with how well you can defend pick and roll and Michigan State unlike a lot of other programs in the Big Ten asks a lot of its five men because Michigan State does not play drop coverage mm -hmm. their big men get out and they hedge and sometimes it's a hard hedge and sometimes it's more of a feather to kind of just string a play out but either way, the big is an active part of that. And then that guy has to be able to recover back to his own man at some point in the sequence that all that asks a lot of a, of a player. And I think Mati Sissoko was very clearly their best option. I think he was objectively good in that area. I'm not going to say great. He wasn't at the Xavier Tillman, Antonio Smith level. Nope. But he's got a chance to get better. He should continue to get better. Um, offensively, I think one area that he can have more of an impact, but it's not just about him. It's about the whole team is we did not see very much of him affecting games as a rim runner right. in transition because MSU just didn't run. Mati Sissoko is a good enough athlete. And he's certainly a good enough finisher that I think he can do damage if Michigan State can get its transition game ramp back up next season. So I look for that. And then the other area, you know, he showed potential as a, at times he showed glimpses of a guy who's got a reasonably good hook shot. I think they can get more out of him as a low post player, but he's got to settle in, you know, by the end of the season, look, I was not advocating for more <laughs> post touches for body. 
But do I think he's potentially got more in him to unlock there? Yeah. And, you know, it goes without saying, we had him as a guest on our podcast. He's doing amazing things with his home village in Mali. We root for him. I root for him. Everything I've ever heard about him. It just, he's an unbelievable kid. You, if you watched the footage at the end of that game and then in the post game and in the locker room after they beat Marquette to go to the sweet 16, there was nobody more excited, more thrilled, more emotional other than Tom Izzo than Mati Sissoko. How can you not root for that? And again, this isn't, Hey, we're, we're, we're pulling for the third walk on. Mati Sissoko brings certain strengths to this team that it needs. And I think there's reason to believe that over the offseason, he will continue to get better. He will find more consistency. He will unlock more parts of his game, but he will continue to hone the things that he's already pretty good at. Um, so I'm, I'm enthusiastic about his future, and I think he had a pretty good year all things considered. Yeah. I think from what people were, from what the disaster people were worried about, I think he wasn't anywhere close right. to what it could have been. Cause had yeah. it, oh, had it not gone well, way beyond that. Yeah, yeah. Had it not gone well, it would have been a really long season. I mean, I think, you know, there, there've been a lot of very, lots of reasons to say, why did you not get someone to the portal? And I think he largely answered the bell uh, for Izzo this season and the, and the team. He was part of it for sure. Yeah. yeah. Uh, before we go to the next, let's just, Another quick word from another sponsor, Brothers That Just Do Gutters. Kurt Stauffer and his team in the West Michigan area, Grand Rapids, out to Sagatuck, down to Rockford, over to Lowell. Uh, you can get your gutters replaced by him, repaired or cleaned out. You can have all those problems fixed. We all deal with lots of water in Michigan. That's one of the reasons we live in the state, but it's also one of the problems of living in the state. There's a lot of water. So we don't, we're not like California. We're not having water shortage all the time, but we have to get it off our roof and get it away from our house. And so you have to have good gutters and a good gutter system. So if you have questions about that, you're worried about it, you need something fixed on your house, call Kurt and his team. You can get a hold of him at an email at kurt.stauffer at brothersgutters.com. You can also just go to brothersgutters.com and, and look up your area and find him. Uh, you're not going to regret it. They do fantastic work. That's all they do is just gutters. And so they specialize in that. You get 10% off if you mention Final Four when you get a hold of Kurt. All right. So let's go on to Pierre Brooks, who um, started five games this season, mainly when Lee Calls hurt earlier. He averaged uh, 14.3 minutes a game and uh, had shot 33% from the field. He was 32.4% from three. At one time, he was up to 40%, and then he just went ice cold. I don't even know if he hit a three again for the rest of the season. I can't remember. Uh, 60% from the line, just six of 10. Uh, he averaged 3.6 points a game and 1.7 rebounds a game and had 11 turnovers and 11 assists, five steals. And he's a guy who, you know, I think after seeing him in Moneyball, he looked like he was improved. He looks like, I mean, physically he, he changed during the season. I think he looked heavier at the end of the season. I think certainly yeah, he was... I mean, he was not, he was not, did not make the jump that we had hoped. I mean, it, certainly early, it looked like he would from a shooting standpoint and it was better, but then it was sort of that one of those, uh, one of those times when you, you're, you are poor on defensive end and then you play poorly on the offensive end. Instead of having a positive feedback loop, you got a negative feedback loop. And I think that's sort of what happened to him at the season to the point where he didn't even play and uh, 
he did. I don't think he ever made it onto the court in the NCAA tournament, did he? Or maybe I don't think he did it in Kansas State's game. No, no, I don't. I don't think so. Um, yeah, look, we we sort of knew heading into the season that this had the feeling of a make or break year for Pierre in terms of his his Michigan State career. He really wasn't able to carve out a consistent role for himself as a freshman, but it seemed obvious that there would be opportunities this year and there were and there were but i think you know we we talked about the injury problems with akins and with hall especially with hall that left a a decently long stretch of games available where msu had no choice but to play pierre significant minutes and he had opportunities to show that he deserved a continued role in the rotation and instead he didn't, he didn't do that. He didn't seize it. And consequently, when those guys got back and got healthy, the opportunity shrunk and he just wasn't playing very consistently, uh, in terms of minutes at the end of the year. Um, he certainly showed during stretches this year that he is capable, although his overall numbers were not good because he really got cold. And again, I'm not even going to blame him for that because the minutes were so inconsistent that yeah. it's hard to get a rhythm as a shooter, but he certainly showed enough when he was playing more regularly that, uh, as expected, he can be a weapon from three, but the problem was he didn't make the strides defensively, or at least consistently as a rebounder that you would want to see. And then, as you mentioned, I think conditioning really had a large part with doing him in. So, um, it's, it's a shame because. I saw this guy's first game as a high school player. So I go all the way back <laughs> to then in terms of watching him. I saw him play numerous times in AAU over the years as well. Um, I thought he was tailor-made for Michigan State because he's got elements to his game offensively that people haven't seen. They've mostly seen him as a three-point bomber. But he is a capable passer, a capable ball handler. He, I think he could eventually um, – maybe even be a guy that you can use as a post-up option at times. It's all been made irrelevant because he didn't get in the kind of shape he needed to be in, which is really a rarity. I mean, we have not seen this happen very often at Michigan state. Normally the guys who have worked to do in that area. So you can think about the obvious ones like Draymond green, Derek Nix, but it's beyond those guys. Even normally the guys who have worked to do in terms of conditioning, get it done. AJ Hogard's done it. Yeah. Right. Um, Pierre has from all we can see has not, has not been able to do that successfully. And I think that's, what's really hurt him. And it's a shame because he's um, I've never heard anything negatively about him as a kid. I know in high school and I assume it's continuing at Michigan state. He was an academic achiever. So he's a smart kid. Um, and I think he's got, skill set that could make him yet a productive college player. I just don't know if it's going to be at MSU, but we'll see. It's going to be a little crowded next year to try and get your way into the lineup. Yeah. Um, so moving on to Jackson Kohler, he played in all 34 games. He did not start any of the games. He shot 50.5% from the field at 50 of 99 shooting. He was 0 for 2 from 3, 2 for 8 from the line for 25%. He averaged uh, 3 points a game, 2.9 rebounds a game. Uh, with a lot of offensive rebounds, his 63 
to 98 defensive rebounds. Mm-hmm. 10 assists, 21 turnovers, five steals, and 16 blocks in fairly limited play. And I think, you know, there's no question watching him from the first game, watching him at the end of the season. Defensively, he was much better. He obviously has yeah. some limitations in athletic ability compared to some other players, but he he did not look lost, which is what we would expect. And offensively, he would occasionally show signs of why people were so high on him and excited about him um, with his footwork and such. So um, anyway, I think overall a pretty successful year for a freshman center like him coming in a situation like he did at Michigan State. Well, it, you know, it depends on what your expectations were. Jackson Kohler, and I still stand by this, in terms of his feel, his footwork, his touch, all of those things, is among the most accomplished guys Izzo's ever brought into the program. And I think you saw why I would say that if you watched him this season. The problem was he wasn't able to translate that into consistent production as often as maybe even I expected him to. And it was because of a couple of things. One, he had real strides he had to make defensively, which was going to limit his minutes. And I did say his defense was going to ultimately be the determinant as to how much of an impact he made. Um, But the other thing was, I think at times he struggled a little bit more than I thought he would with the speed of the game. So for example, teams started to really double him pretty aggressively in the post when he would get a post touch. I didn't think he always handled that as, as well as he could have. I think he will get better at it. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's a Nick Ward situation. I think he'll get better, but I think that was part of why explains why his production was more muted than people might've thought it would be. I think he unquestionably, I agree with you. He made strides defensively by the end of the season. Um, I thought he had made significant improvement. Now, considering where he was coming from, he still got miles to go. But everything you hear about him is he's a worker. He wants to be great. And he is willing to put the time in to get better. So I expect that we're going to see continued strides from him. And the better he gets, the more reliable he gets defensively, the more trust he'll earn. And then the more opportunity there will for his offense to really show through, which Again, if you if you watched, you could see the kid can score. He's got he's got a fall away jumper that's reliable. He's got post moves from here to eternity in terms of (laughs) in terms of what he can bust out on people. And I actually think you mentioned he was over two from three. Jackson Kohler can shoot. Yeah. At Michigan State, typically guys have to earn that trust over time. Uh, and so I expect that we will see more of that from him. Maybe not quite out to the three point line, but he showed it even occasionally this year, his ability to hit like a a face up 12 footer is pretty good. I have faith in him taking those kind of shots and I think he'll get more opportunities, but I, I really like him. And I think he, he got slagged early on for some reason by some MSU fans about his rebounding. And if you look at the numbers, actually pretty good. Yeah. As you say, he's especially got a knack on the offensive end. I think Jackson Kohler is going to be a decent rebounder. You know, I'm not saying Antonio Smith, but I don't think that's going to be a problem. So I'm, I'm still bullish on his future. It's just he's got to continue to do the work. I think he'll have an opportunity this offseason to work on his body a little bit. Um, I think he's made progress, but he's got to continue to get better. And just 
the sharper he gets in terms of understanding things defensively, the better he's going to be because it's going to allow him to use his head to make up for some of his physical limitations. Yeah, he definitely has a good feel for the game. You can see certainly on the offensive end. We've seen, we've seen this happen too many times to count at Michigan <laughs> State. Anybody who's cashing in the chips on him and where he can get to because of where he was as a freshman is probably <laughs> going to lose that bet. Next, go to another freshman, Carson Cooper, who has suddenly made the center position actually fairly crowded uh, going into the future. He yeah. played in 30 games. He averaged, uh, he was shot 73.1% uh, from the field, mainly on dunks. He was nine for 19 from the line for 47.4%. Actually, he's the seventh highest in free throw attempts for the team, uh, mainly because he's, you know, attacking the rim and, you know, following yeah. on his attempts, but dunk attempts. So he averaged 1.6 points a game. Uh, he had 0.9 rebounds a game, three assists, seven turnovers, four steals, uh, and eight blocks. And I guess, you know, if you were to look at if look at all the players and uh, recruiting, you say he's probably the highest value in the sense that he was like almost not an afterthought, but sort of in some respects and adding to this class. And he has uh, certainly shown himself defensively to be to have progressed significantly from the beginning of the season to the end, where I think, you know, you we recognized right away that he had the physical tools and ability to, to play good yep. defense, but it was the understanding where to be and those sorts of things that certainly started clicking. It looked like at the end of the season and he played significant minutes, even in the NCAA tournament. Yeah. And productive minutes. Um, look, we he was a very, I mean, afterthought is a good word for it. He got, he got offered in the summer. He had already started playing AAU basketball because he was going to do a prep school year. He had played it. IMG on their, their B team. Um, I think he had a couple of D one offers, but the idea was he was going to go play a prep school year and then see what opportunities he had, you know, this year as a recruit, but Michigan state came in in the summer when they'd lost Julius marble, had an opportunity, didn't like what they saw on the portal and they went and got him. And when you started to see clips of him, it was obvious, I think, to certainly to me and to you that, well, this is an interesting kid because for somebody who was so obscure, because he's all of 6'11", yeah, he's thin, but he can move. It was obvious. And then when I dug a little deeper, found out he had been uh, like a high-level travel team soccer goalkeeper, um, that suggested, okay, if you're, if you're playing that position at a decently high level, you've got to have some good lateral movement because that's the whole deal besides the size for a goalkeeper. They got to be able to go side to side. And so that suggested, hey, there's real potential to work with. Then he played money ball and he had some good showings there. Again, not that that determines you're going to be great, but it, at least you could see the athleticism and the size, right? That combination, mm -hmm. which made him intriguing. And I think almost from the start, you know, they were originally, the plan was he was going to redshirt. Then it came out in the fall. Well, he's actually shown enough. We don't think he's going to redshirt now. And I think that ended up being a very positive move for MSU and for Carson, because again, another guy who his comfort level and confidence from November to that game against Kansas state, he went miles in the right direction. Yeah. I think he's already shown a knack 
for understanding what's required of him as a pick and roll defender. And he has the physical tools to potentially be an outstanding one. He showed an ability to be a rim protector. Mm-hmm. You know, I think, what did you say? Eight blocks. That's eight not blocks a lot. And limited minutes. But, I mean, yeah. But yeah, in very limited minutes. And he showed that potential. And I think he got better later in the year. Offensively, while we haven't seen much, and I don't necessarily expect to see much anytime soon in terms of a jump shot, those types of things, I think he can actually be very effective around the rim. Um, he, they've, they've done some pick and roll with him as a lob guy. He's also shown an ability as a garbage man. Uh, was it the mm-hmm. USC game? USC or Marquette? I can't remember which. And he came flying in for a putback off a Miss Tyson Walker layup. Um, that kind of thing, all present. He's another guy that I think, as Michigan State's transition game hopefully gets ramped back up, with his ability to move, that's a rim running threat. So sky is the. I don't even think we've scratched the surface of what Carson Cooper might end up being. The other thing about him is, you know, we talked about how, how thin he appeared to be, and that was true for the upper body to some degree, although I think he held up better than many might have expected. Yeah. But his lower body is actually pretty well put together already, and that's critical for a big man because it's, it's what's involved in carving out and holding space or, conversely, fighting for space when you're the defender, um, trying to root a guy out from the spot he wants to be in. So that stuff is all very positive. And, you know, what what happens over this offseason will obviously be, be very important in terms of physical development. And again, another guy just needs more reps. Yep. He's just got to play. But you put these three kids together, and I think I think you can look at that five spot. And, you know, nobody's talking about anybody emerging as a 20 and 10 guy, but I feel pretty positive about what the potential is for that position in the, in the ways that MSU needs them to be good for next year's team. Cause I don't think they need big scoring out of that spot. I really don't. Whatever scoring they get is a bonus. I think they need good, consistent defense, good, consistent rebounding. And I like the potential of this group to give them that and, and hopefully, and I think quite possibly more scoring than they got this year as well. Well, I think, you know, when you look at this team next year and your assumption is that there's going to be a lot more transition and a lot more running, all three of those players, I think, can be very successful running the floor. And so I think, you know, you're going to get more. Got, Kohler's right. got work to do. Yeah. Kohler's got work to do. But the other two, it's obvious. Yeah. Although I would say with Kohler, he's got great hands. Like he gets those passes even lower. He does. The floor. And so he you does. can see him getting that and, you know, getting a layup and things like that. So I... Um, anyway, I think, I think there's a lot more we're going to see from that position. It's not going to be seen as a weakness. I don't think going forward, uh, moving on then to the last freshman, Trey Holloman. He played in every game, 34 games. He averaged, uh, 8.6 minutes a game, basically spelling at the point for AJ Hogard. He shot 38.6% from the field. He was three for 13 for the season for 23% uh, from three, six for 10 from the line for 60%. He, uh, averaged a little under, uh, so 1.3 points a game and had about a little under a rebound a game, 29 assists to 11 turnovers for freshmen, five steals, three blocks. Yep. I mean, almost three to one assist to turnover ratio. I mean, very limited minutes, but for a spot minute guy coming in freshman in the Tom Izzo program, that's pretty good. 
there, there is for a guy who wasn't hugely productive. I think there's still a lot to like about Trey Holloman. I think the, the biggest thing to me that's got to come for Trey. And I, and I think it will is what will unlock the next step of his development is his becoming truly confident in his own offensive game. Yeah. So the assist to turnover number is fantastic. It means he made generally very good decisions and rarely made mistakes, but that's only part of the story because you also need a player at that position to be dynamic, to be not just a caretaker, but be making things happen. And that's where Trey wasn't doing as much. He was hesitant to shoot at times, but the, the good news is here. I don't think this is a total rebuild project with him. This is not Eric snow freshman year. All right. Um, or even Tum Tum Nairn. I think Trey Holloman's shot looks pretty good. Yeah. In terms of the mechanics of it. I'm not saying there isn't work that can be done, but this is not a total rebuild job. In my opinion, I think mostly he just needs to be more confident in taking it and asserting mm -hmm. himself, you know, and when that comes, I think the, you will see a gradual slope of improvement in his offensive game. Defensively, I think he has great potential. Now, early on this year, I thought he looked like he could be a lockdown guy. And as the year went on at times, I think his people, you know, opponents, Big Ten, they always say best scouting in the country. Um, I think teams figured out ways that he could be attacked individually. And I think he was less solid than he had been in terms of his individual defense, just squaring up a guy and not, not allowing himself to get beat to the basket. At times he had trouble there, but the potential for him defensively is still very high. I think he's going to be a really good defender. And I think he was already solid this year. I don't mean to suggest he was bad. Mm -hmm. I just think I, I thought early in the season, wow, this could be like a Travis Walt kind of defender and he wasn't quite that level but i think he's got the potential to be very very good so there's a lot to like here it's just i think with him the biggest thing is mindset confidence and when that clicks i think everything else will fall into place i don't think we've scratched the surface of what he could be offensively either because if you look at how this guy played in high school he was a creator not just a creative player but a creator with flair and we saw almost none of that this year well, what does that tell you? That tells you that this is a guy who's kind of swimming in it a little bit and doesn't want to make mistakes. And he didn't. So he did that part. But I'd rather see a few more mistakes to go along with much more aggressive play. And I suspect Tom Izzo would as well. It sure seems like watching him that there's much more there than with the Tum Tum, you know, from an offensive standpoint and being oh, able yeah. to create and oh, stuff. Yeah. And so, you yep. know, and Tum Tum no played a bunch of years. And so it, it it, it again, much like the center position, the guard position is going to be potentially going to be very crowded next year as well. And so getting minutes is going to be hard. And so they'll be pushing each other, which is good. Yep. Uh, that that's the thing is how much, how much more of a role will be there for Trey. I don't know the answer to that, but um, I think he's going to push for it and I think he will get better. Uh, so then we get near the end of the lineup here. We get down to Jason Whitens. He played 19 games. He started one on senior day. He averaged 4.2 minutes a game. Uh, it was four for six in the field for 67%, 0 for two for three. He was real instrumental. As you mentioned earlier, he played a lot of minutes in that PK 85 and kind of helped Michigan State tread water there. Uh -huh. uh, had 
10 rebounds for the season, a couple assists, a couple of ste- turnovers, three steals. So, you know, for a guy, I'm sure more practice squad guy and someone who certainly is very appreciative of where he was, he, um, I think he played handles up very well and was a good addition to the team. It's just too bad he hadn't got injured the year before because they certainly could use him a little bit more, I think, last season than this season. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. Um, the way this season unfolded, you know, in part because MSU played so differently than they normally do in terms of pace, Yeah, there wasn't as much of a need as you would normally anticipate for wing depth. Yeah, right. Like they were able, because they played slowly, they were able to get by with, you know, I guess it was basically five guys in the perimeter rotation because you had the three starters um, and then you had uh, Hall and Holloman off the bench. You know, and Hall wasn't even exclusively a wing, so it was really more like four and two-thirds. That's (laughs) unusual. Normally, for those three spots, you would expect MSU to be playing six guys. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, that didn't just squeeze Whitens out, it squeezed Pierre Brooks out too. Right. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, Whitens was important in Portland for sure. And, um, great that he got to live a dream and, and actually play a year at a high major. I, I believe technically he would be eligible to come back if he seeks a medical waiver. And I don't think that's been decided yet, but, um, I, if he were to come back, I don't think there's any kind of likelihood of a strong playing role. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but a guy who was important in practice and to give them a depth option when they absolutely needed it at an early point in the season. Yeah. Next we'll go to David Smith, uh, Steve Smith's son who had originally decided to transfer out of Michigan state, but decided to come back and return. He played in 12 games. He, uh, was one for five for the season, uh, over two for three. And, um, so he had a bucket for the year, a couple of rebounds. Uh, yeah. I mean, all these guys, we could talk about Nick Sanders and Steven Izzo together. Sure. With yeah. Them, all I the think. All kinds of um, you know, important guys, I think culturally, um, never hear a bad word about any of them. They all appear to be very popular with their teammates, which is important for guys in those roles. Um, I think it's, you know, it's crazy how MSU has three walk-ons with, you know, celebrity fathers, <laughs> one being the coach of the team, the other being an all-time Michigan State basketball great and and a truly great NBA player as well. And then, in my opinion, the best running back that ever lived. Yep. Um, that was pretty cool seeing Barry Sanders at MSU NCAA tournament games. I, I, I like that. Yeah. Um, Better than Oklahoma it State. Was, uh, yeah, absolutely. But uh yeah. What more can you say? I mean, I think they, you know, by all accounts, they did the job you want guys in those roles to do. Yeah. I think the only other thing to add there is Steven Izzo is, has announced that he is returning for another year and, and his quest to score a point. Uh, yeah. We'll see, I, I imagine he'll have a, a ample opportunities at the beginning of the season. Uh, uh, and I, well. I would hope, I would hope Nick Sanders is back as well. This, he was a freshman. Right. Um, I'm not sure about Davis Smith. I think Davis Smith is a senior, right? I thought he was a junior, but he, but I, but I'm, I well, he wrong. would have the COVID year. He would have the COVID oh, year yeah. in any event, but I don't know what the decision is there, but, um, and, and of those three, actually, it is fair to say, I mean, Davis Smith, I would say showed to be a level apart from the other two. Yes. He actually played because in somewhat meaningful minutes. I mean, I could actually yeah. see him 
at a at a lower, maybe even a low level D one, maybe being a guy that gets a shot. Yeah. From somewhere. And I think so. that's what he was that's what he was mulling over at the between seasons because he thought he probably had an opportunity to play at a Georgia State or someplace like that, yeah. you know. Yep. Uh, closer to home. Uh, all right. So I guess that wraps up our discussion, the recap for the Michigan State. I don't know if there's anything else to say except I think, you know, a pretty good season. It was very entertaining, uh, weird, but it, they're up. And I say in general, a good foundation for next season. I think, you know, with the people coming in, I think you have every reason to be very optimistic and that you've got a good foundation of shooting and scoring and defense that you can now add to that, hopefully. And maybe a, to your point too, about adding transition aspect to the game and probably increase athleticism and, you know, better rebounding. So, I mean, this is a team that made the Sweet 16 and was inches away from the Elite Eight and potentially Final Four. So, you know, what's possible next year? I, you know, I th- we'll find out when the whole roster comes out and when we actually see them on the court. But I tell you what, I, I, I like the way the season ended and how, and how we're, the trajectory is the right direction. I do too. And, and look, there are a lot of, you know, there, there are multiple decisions that need to be made. And I mean, we're, and we're we need to all accept that we're in this era where, that's true in every season. It's not just about, well, does a guy come back for a COVID year? You know, that's going to end eventually, but um, it's the portal just throws a monkey wrench into any sense of self-assuredness that you might have. So before we talk about next season, (laughs) we've really got to wait and see how all these questions get resolved. I think there's reason to be, I'll say this much. I think there's reason to be optimistic that Michigan State will have a very strong returning cast from this year. And we know that they've got an outstanding freshman class, at least by the rankings, one of the best Tom Izzo's ever secured. Um, and they're, they're guys that are coming in at positions where they're needed. And as you said, they bring, they should bring a level of quality depth and athleticism that this team could use. Um, I think there's reason to hope that they will uh, positively impact this team in the transition game in terms of rebounding. And those are two areas where they can really use it. Um, but, I, you know, we're recording this on what is it? Tuesday afternoon. Yep. Um, I believe tonight is a McDonald's all America game. Half of MSU's recruiting class will be in that game. <laughs> Jeremy fears who we had with us earlier in the year. I uh, was a point guard and uh, Xavier Booker, who's the highest rated uh, top 10 recruit nationally. And you're seeing stories come out from McDonald's game today where everybody covering it is admitting the same thing, which is Xavier Booker, has the greatest upside of anybody in this class nationally because he is 6'11 and moves the way he moves, meaning he's a very gifted athlete, but he also has ball skills you typically do not see in guys his size. Now, are there things he's got to work on? Hell yeah. But he's going to the right place to do it. I saw a quote today from some anonymous NBA scout who said, Tom Izzo's either going to make him or break him. (laughs) So (laughs) we'll... We'll see, but you know, for the areas that people talk about that he has talked about that he needs to develop in, he could not be going to a better place in terms of the expectations that will be put on him. So you got those two guys, and then you have 
Cohen Carr and, and Garrick Norman, who we had with us on the show earlier in the year as well, um, who are going to add just two things that this team did not have enough of, in my opinion, wing size and wing athleticism. And if you still haven't seen clips of Cohen Carr dunking, go do yourself a favor and go to YouTube <laughs> and get a look because, you know, Jaden Akins is a very high level athlete on this current team, right? Yeah. Uh, he doesn't touch Cohen Carr. He won't be the, <laughs> he won't be the best athlete anymore after this. Yeah. Cohen Carr is, I put in a category with Jason Richardson, Miles Bridges. He is at the top, top, top end in terms of vertical of guys that have come into this program in the Izzo era. So a lot to be excited about a lot yet to sort out and determine, and we will see which way it goes. But, um, I agree with you. I think the trajectory is positive. And if you've not yet subscribed to the show, make sure you do so. So you don't miss when we come up with that, we come with all the roster and then all the uh, recruitment news. Uh, this is the place where you're going to get a best evaluation. I think for sure there's a number one, Michigan State basketball podcast in America, by far, it is top 50 in the country as far as all basketball podcasts, largely thanks to you and all your and listening and supporting the show. Continue to share it with your friends who are Spartans and maybe even non-Spartan friends too. We I think we have a pretty good fair take. We've had a lot of comments when we do evaluation of other teams and usually their fans are fairly, fairly appreciative of us, which is kind of fun because not all these schools, especially the Big Ten, have much for uh, coverage. So they appreciate it as well. So again, uh, Looking forward to the season, spring break. Everyone be safe out there. And until next time, the Final Four is on the schedule. Go green.